take your Bibles, open them up to Acts chapter 16. You're like, Acts? It says Philippians. Well, just bear with me for a second. Go to Acts chapter 16. Because sometimes when we read these New Testament letters, I, I think we can forget that they were written with certain people in mind. That the Apostle Paul was doing ministry with people, that he was living life with people, that he was preaching the gospel to people, seeing them get saved. And then there are a lot of the people that he's writing to then after that. And so Acts chapter 16 gives us the background of the Philippian church and helps us to appreciate a little bit more what we read in the book of Philippians because Paul's going to be thinking about these types of people, these people that he's, he's writing about here or that Luke is writing about in Acts chapter 16. So in Acts chapter 16, we pick up in verse 6, it says, They went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So, passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. Now you're wondering, what in the world? Well, here's where we get to, to Philippi. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia, that's the region where Philippi was located, was standing there urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia in a Roman colony, Philippi. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside to the riverside where we were supposed, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. So there's a group of women that are coming together to do a, a Bible study, for lack of a better term, and one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to all that was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you've judged me faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So now they're staying with Lydia and her family in Philippi after preaching the gospel to them and seeing them come to faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 16, as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of When her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they're disturbing our city. They're advocating customs that are not lawful for us Romans to accept their practice. The crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. This is all happening here in Philippi. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them in prison, ordering that the jailer keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the locks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Don't harm yourself, for we're all still here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, trembling with fear. He fell down before Paul and Silas. And then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, you and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them that same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all of his family. Then he brought them to the house and he set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Okay, I read all that. Why? That's a lot of time to take, right? To, to, to read this section of Acts 16. But I do that because I want you to think when you're reading the book of Philippians, I want you to think about Lydia. I want you to think about this slave girl potentially. I want you to think about this jailer and their families and the fact that these are the people that Paul was there that he preached the gospel to. They were op their eyes were opened by God. They believed in the gospel. They repented from their sins. They trusted Jesus. And now Paul is writing to these people. He's not writing to just people that he doesn't know. He's not writing to a nameless, faceless group of people that are gathered together. No, he's writing to people, some of whom he was their spiritual father. He'd share the gospel with them, and they came to faith in Christ through the apostle 
Paul. So that's the background to this church that's in Philippi here. The series is called Got Joy. Some of you are probably too young to remember this ad campaign. Maybe you do. But that's kind of what we're driving at, right? The whole milk, and it's like cotton. It's like who's competing against cotton when it's the fabric of our lives? It's polyester, like, wait a second, hold on, right? Like who's, like milk is, like who's getting the money from that? Milk is just getting the money. Got milk, it was the question. But the whole point was, are you drinking enough milk? And nobody would ever run this ad campaign now because there's way too many lactose intolerant people out there and this is a no-go in our woke culture. So you won't find any Got Milk ad campaigns running on Instagram anywhere soon. But it was somewhat effective because it was talking about, man, if you don't have milk, don't you want milk? Like here's all the benefits of milk. Shouldn't you crave this? Shouldn't you desire this? And I would imagine, I, I wouldn't have to work very hard to get you guys to admit that you want joy in your life. That if, if you're sitting there, and some of you are sitting there tonight going, man, I don't have joy. I, I wish I had joy, but uh, you know, Pastor, I just don't have joy. Some of y'all are sitting out there tonight, and you are the most joyful person on the face of the planet, joyful to an annoying level, even, where you, like, we love you, but sometimes we just need to break from you, because your joy, just, it's, it's that high, right? And the rest of you are somewhere in the middle, going, yeah, joy is, is good, and sometimes I have it, but man, I wish I had more of it. The book of Philippians is going to unpack joy. The, the book of Philippians is going to connect joy to a person. The book of Philippians is going to take joy and connect it to Jesus. And the book of Philippians is going to unpack for us what joy in Jesus really looks like. And that's why this series is called God Joy. If you want joy, if you want true joy, if you want lasting joy, if you want joy that will satisfy you, then it has to come from Jesus. It can't come from anywhere else. Any other source will fall flat, but Jesus will provide. In fact, in our opening section here, even though the word joy is only used briefly by Paul, it's really kind of laying the foundation for where joy comes from. As we pick up in Philippians chapter 1, the first 11 verses will be what we're covering tonight. And we're going to see in these 11 verses that, that this is about joy that's found in Jesus. It's, it starts with Jesus. It's joy that's sustained by Jesus. And it's joy that is ultimately finally realized with Jesus. Okay? So that's what we're looking at in Philippians 1, 1 through 11. In fact, let's read the passage. It says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, Lydia, Philippian jailer, your families, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. There's our word because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Look at the greeting of this letter. We sign our letters, our emails at the end. And back in the first century Rome, when they were writing letters, they would front load that part. And so Paul greets them this way. He says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Well, right away, we see these, these two authors mentioned. Although in the rest of the epistle, Paul is using first person singular. So I don't think Timothy is writing this with Paul as a co-author. That it's like, okay, this is Paul writing. And now here's Timothy writing. Rather, I think Timothy, one of two things. Timothy was significant to this church, and we're going to read about that in, in Philippians chapter 2. Timothy loved these people there. He knew them. He had fellowship with them. He prayed for them. He cared for them. Paul says, I've got no one else in chapter 2. He says, I've got no one else who loves you as much as Timothy loves you. 
And so Paul, being a close worker with Timothy, may have been writing to this church saying, hey, look, this is, I'm writing on behalf of Timothy. We love you. Hey, this is both of us, and, and here's our message. But the message is really Paul's message that he's writing. That's one possibility. The other possibility is that Timothy was his, his secretary, his what we call an amanuensis. Paul obviously, or not obviously, maybe, but apparently did not have the best handwriting. It says at the end of his, one of his letters, he says, I, Paul, write this with my own hand. See with what large letters I am writing. Uh, possibly because his handwriting was not all that great. In fact, the thorn in the flesh is believed by some to have been the fact that he didn't have great eyesight. And so that would have led him not to have very legible handwriting. It's possible that Timothy was the one writing this letter. But Paul and Timothy, Paul is the main author of the book of Philippians. And as he writes, he writes to this group that are gathered there in Philippi, the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. Saints is a word that we don't throw around very often, but it comes from the, the Greek word for sanctification. We, we know that word, right? That means to be made holy. And so if someone is a saint, they are holy, right? And they are sanctified. And so if someone is a saint if they are in Christ Jesus. That's how one becomes a saint. It has nothing to do with a church or a pope or canonization or anything like that. It has to do with, did you repent and put your faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? If Paul was here addressing you today, he would speak to you in Aramaic or Greek, but he would address you as saints this morning or this evening. Why? Because you are in Christ. If you are in Christ, you are a saint. So don't get tripped up on that word. He's writing to the believers, to Lydia and to her family and to the Philippian jailer and his family. He's writing to them saying, hey, this is my letter to you. This is our letter to you. But I skipped over a part of the greeting. Paul and Timothy, what does it say there next? What's the next word in your Bibles there? Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Now that's the ESV squeamishly avoiding any sort of misunderstanding and woke uh, sins in the world. They weren't really trying to avoid, woke, avoid wokeness at the time, but the word is doulos in the Greek, okay? There it is. That's, that's what it looks like in the Greek text. And doulos is a word that means slave, Okay. It's a word that means slave. Now, that's a loaded word. You hear that, I hear that, and our minds go to the 1800s and American chattel slavery, and we think, man, to be a slave is a bad thing. It's a horrible thing. It's a societal uh, taboo to talk about slavery. I can't believe this. Why would we talk about We need to get those concepts of slavery out of our mind because that's not what Paul's talking about. Roman slavery was not the same as 1800s American chattel slavery, okay? Roman slavery was you were owned by somebody else still, so that is true, but you were, you were indebted to them. They, they were your master. But there were slaves who were doctors. There were slaves who were uh, teachers. There were slaves who were artisans. There were slaves who, who had livings outside of this. But they were indebted to, they were obligated to their master, the one who owned them at the time. And so Paul and Timothy are wanting the, the church that they're writing there to know we are slaves of a particular person. Who is it that they're slaves of? Slaves of Christ Jesus. This is not the only time Paul identifies himself that way. Titus chapter 1 verse 1. He says, Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ. Galatians 1.10. He says, look, if I'm trying to please men there, he said, I wouldn't be a slave of Christ. If I was worried about what men thought of me, I'd be a slave of men, not of Jesus. But Paul's saying, no, I'm a slave of Jesus. Philippians 2.7. We'll get there. The kenosis passage. When it says, Jesus took the form of a servant. He took the form of a slave there. And so this is a, a concept, this title of slave, that in our culture has taken on such a negative connotation. For the early apostles and the early writers of, of the scripture, this was a, a badge of honor. Yes, it was a mark of humility to say, I am a slave of Jesus. Jesus owns me. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, right? We can see the language. We can hear the echoes of it through other parts of the scriptures. But this was a mark of humility, but it was also a badge of honor. It was one that they were all too eager to identify themselves as. Paul, I, interestingly, doesn't say that he's an apostle here the way he does in some of the other letters. But remember, Paul knew these people intimately. They knew he was an apostle. He didn't need to appeal to his apostolic authority. So Paul's introducing himself and reminding them what? Look, you want to know what's significant about me? It's that I'm a slave of Jesus. Y'all, that's a mindset that was theirs. It's a mindset that, that we need to embrace as well. It's an identity that we need to embrace as well. Whatever you choose to identify yourself as, we need to understand that a major part of our joy in this life is making sure that we are identified with Christ like Paul was, like Timothy was, not as co-heirs and co-regents and co-rulers and everything else, but first and foremost as slaves of God, slaves of 
Jesus. And that's where joy begins, is recognizing and understanding that identity. Point number one tonight is this. Realize joy begins with our new identity. Joy begins with our new identity. Listen, I'll just be honest with you. If you're here tonight and, and you would say, I'm not a Christian, and I know there's some of you here that would say that, and you'd be honest, and we appreciate honesty in that regard. But if you would say, I'm, I'm not a Christian, then I, as far as a hope for you to have joy, I really don't have anything to offer you right now until you get right with God through faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. There is no joy to be found outside of that. Any joy that you seek after apart from Jesus will be momentary. It will not last. It will not satisfy. Joy is found first and foremost with our new identity in Christ. And we are brought into that relationship of slave and master with Jesus when we enter into that relationship through faith and repentance in Jesus' accomplished work on the cross for us. And so Christians, we embrace this identity and we with James understand that we need to humble ourselves as he says in James chapter four, verse 10. We need to humble ourselves and embrace and understand, man, I'm a slave of God. I'm a slave of Jesus. I'm here to do his bidding. I'm here to do his will. He is my master. And we humble ourselves before the Lord and James says he will exalt you. Or Peter echoes this sentiment. He says, humble yourselves, 1 Peter 5, 6, therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. I want to unpack this concept of being a slave of God. Take your Bibles and open up to Romans chapter 6. Open up to Romans chapter 6 because we need to understand the freedom that we have in Christ. Because maybe you're hearing me talk about slavery, 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 and you're going, wait a minute, I thought, I thought for freedom Christ has set us free. I thought that being a Christian is about being free in Christ. What's all this talk about slavery? Well, Romans helps us understand what freedom in Christ really looks like because it's not the same freedom that the world champions. It's not the same freedom that the world says we should be desiring and pursuing and embracing. Romans chapter 6, pick up in verse 6. Paul writes this, we know that our old self was crucified with Jesus, with him, with Jesus, in order that the body of sin might be rendered powerless, might be brought to nothing is what the text says, so that we would no longer be, here it is, enslaved to sin. So Christians, you repent from your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You are united with his death, as Paul says in Romans 6. Your old self has been crucified with him so that you are now no longer enslaved to sin. You've been set free from sin. So sin no longer has mastery over you, right? In fact, that's what Paul goes on to say. Look down at verse 12. He says, because of this, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. Don't submit to a master that you've been set free from anymore to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have brought from death, been brought from death to life and your members as instruments to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion, no power, no mastery over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. And so you've been set free from sin. Quit acting like sin's your master is what Paul's saying here. So this is that freedom concept that we have. We have been set free from enslavement to sin so that you are no longer bound by that sin that you battle. You no longer have to give in and yield to that sin that you're battling. You've been set free from that. Now present yourselves to God for righteousness sake. Now look down at verse 16. Paul asks a question. He says, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Okay, so Paul's saying you've been set free, but not to autonomous freedom. You're not set free to this neutral stance now where you have no master any longer. Paul says this, he says, look, everyone has a master. You are a slave of the one you obey. He says, either of sin, which leads to death or obedience, which leads to righteousness. Keep going, verse 17. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become now obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Read their gospel, the good news of faith and repentance in Jesus Christ. He's saying that has set you free from slavery to sin, but now you are obedient to that standard. And verse 18, having been set free from sin, notice this, you have become slaves of righteousness. See, there's no such thing as autonomous freedom for anyone. 
everyone is a slave. The question is, who are you a slave to? What are you a slave to? Are you a slave to sin or are you a slave to righteousness? Christ at the cross sets us free from our slavery to sin. But he sets us free to enslave us to himself and to righteousness. See, that's the paradoxical, paradoxical paradigm of Christian freedom. That it's freedom that results in slavery. That's why Paul says, I am a slave of Christ Jesus. Why? Because of the gospel, we belong to God. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 20. You can flip back to Philippians, by the way. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 20. For you were bought with a price, so therefore glorify God in your body. And, and maybe you're grinding against that tonight. You're, you're grading against that. You're going, I, that's still, that doesn't sit well with me. I like the idea that Christ has set me free from sin, and I'm free. Free. Forever. Amen. Come join the song of all the redeemed. Yes, we're free, right? I like that, that I'm, I'm autonomously free now because of what Jesus has done. It's great, but that's not what the Bible teaches us. And let me suggest that it's a good thing for us to be enslaved to God. And here's the reason why. Because God is a good God. He's a good God. He's a good master. If we're going to be enslaved and we're either enslaved to sin or to righteousness, man, I sign me up to be enslaved to God all day long. Because here's what the Bible says about God. Exodus 34, 6. In fact, this is what God says about God. This is one of the first times that he opens up and reveals himself fully. Moses has said, God, show me your glory. God said, well, you would die if that happened. So why don't I hide you in this rock and you can see the backside of my glory. But as he passed by, he says this. He says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful. Oh, man, mercy is so good, right? Mercy is not getting what we deserve. What do we deserve? We deserve death. We deserve the wrath of God for our sin. The Lord, a God merciful and gracious. Well, mercy is not getting what we deserve. Grace is getting what we don't deserve, right? Grace is getting forgiveness. Grace is getting the, the love of God. Grace is getting adoption as sons and daughters into the family of God. Uh, he's slow to anger. Oh, praise God for that, right? Because I'm still a knucklehead in my own life from time to time, and I'm so glad that God is slow to anger with me. I'm so glad that he is a patient God with me. That is such a good thing. He's abounding in steadfast love. That's a word that has to do with his covenant love right? That he has set that upon us and that is, a, it's abundant. You're not going to wake up tomorrow morning and have God go, you know what? I changed my mind on this whole crucifixion, Jesus dying on the cross for your justification thing. I, 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 I'm not going to do that anymore. No, he's abounding in steadfast love. His covenant love for you is immovable. He will always love you that way and faithfulness and faithfulness, right? This is a God I want to be enslaved to. Right? This is not a cruel taskmaster. This is not a God who is a, an egomaniac who just is after everything for himself that, that wants us to, to put on the chains and just go to work in the sweltering sun until we die in our chains. He has the right to do that. He's the God of the universe. But because he's a good God, because he loves us, he wants a relationship with you, and slavery to God is a good thing. Slavery to God means intimacy with him. It means relationship with him. It means the future that's there for us in Revelation 21. We don't have time to turn there, but the idea of the fact that he's going to wipe away your tears from your eyes. What kind of master does that? A good master, a loving master, a kind master. But see, the world says freedom is not found there. The world says freedom is found in autonomy. Psalm chapter 2 talks about that. How the nations, they're, they're, they're wanting to throw off the bonds of God. Come, let us, let us cast them off from ourselves. We don't want to be, uh, we don't want his rule and authority over us anymore. And so the world tells you, you know what? You need to be free, autonomous in your personhood. Your individual will and emotion and intellect, that, that you should have complete freedom there and autonomy there. You shouldn't subject yourself to some God some book that was written 2,000 years ago? Why, why would you do that? You don't need to do that. The world says you should have freedom of expression. Hey, you know what? It, it, live your truth. Express whatever truth you want to, to, to express and you want to live out. You should be free to do those things. The world says you should have freedom of identity. Why would you identify yourself as a slave? Don't be a slave. Be whatever you want to be. You can identify yourself however you want to identify yourself. No one can tell you that your identity is wrong. The world says you should have freedom of morality. Do whatever you want to do. Who cares? 
Who are you to tell me that what I'm doing is sinful, is wrong? How dare you? Right? The world is peddling a lie that that's where joy is found. I don't know if you remember this or grew up having a, a mom and dad that read this story to you growing up, but does anybody recognize this on the back screen? Who is that? Hansel and Gretel, and everything in you is going, don't go in there. There's some creepy, weird lady that wants to cook you, right? <laughs> Yo, that's the world. And it's saying, come on, look at how appealing this is. Look at the happiness. Look at the joy. Look at the satisfaction. L- look at the fulfillment. Look at the acceptance. Look at the embracing that, that you will get. Look at the community that we will provide for you. L- come to us. And then you get in the world's grips, and the world wants to take you down. That's why Paul says slavery to sin leads to death. Or a little bit older than Hansel and Gretel. Anybody recognize this? This is Pilgrim and Vanity Fair. If you've read the book Pilgrim's Progress. And and here we see it illustrated even more because look, the world is clinging to them. They're they're trying to prevent them from leaving away from the the joys and the, the, the pleasures of the world. Try to say, no, 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 stay here. It's much better to stay here and enjoy and experience these pleasures. The pilgrim had his eyes fixed on a greater joy than anything that the world could offer. A joy that would come from Christ. A joy that's anchored to this identity in Christ. Y'all, that is where true, lasting joy begins. It begins with our identity in Christ. It begins with this mindset that we are slaves of Jesus. And that is such a good thing. Because we serve a master who loved us, as Philippians is going to say, to the point of being willing to humble himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, so that your sins can be forgiven. You want joy? Realize it begins with Jesus. It begins with Jesus. That's where it starts. Paul goes on, though. He continues after the greeting. All we've done is get through the greeting. We're going to move a little bit more quickly now. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, verse 3. Remember, he's thinking about these people that we read about in Acts chapter 16. Always, in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy. Paul's thinking about them, and it brings him joy. Where's Paul writing from, by the way? I didn't touch on that at the beginning of this. He's writing from prison. He's writing from a jail cell. He's going, you know what brings me joy in the midst of the jail cell? Remembering you thinking about you because why because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now and i'm sure of this that he who began a good work and you will bring it to completion at the day of jesus christ it's right for me to feel this way about you all because i hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel for god is my witness how i yearn for you all with the affection of christ jesus now There's a verse that may have sounded familiar to you in this passage when it says this, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. How many of y'all, by show of hands, have heard that verse and thought that that verse is about your eternal security, that you will be saved because God is going to bring your salvation to completion at the day of Jesus Christ? Okay, only like five or six of you in the room. I'm going to guess the rest of you are just shy. Um, Yeah, it's used all the time, but y'all, I don't think that's what Paul's talking about here. Can we preach eternal security? Yes. Can we preach once saved, always saved? Yes. If what, man, you know what I'm about to say. If you're really saved, there you go. Throwback, call back there. But yes, we can preach eternal security. We just have to preach it from the right texts. But I want us to look at the context of what Paul's talking about here because he's not talking about their salvation. He's talking about their mission. He's talking about their partnership with him in the gospel. Notice right before that, he says in verse five, he's joyful about them because why? Because of their partnership their fellowship. They're they're working together with Paul, serving alongside Paul in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you, what work? The work of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, that he will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It's right for me, notice verse 7, to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers of grace with me, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. You're recipients of the grace of God in doing the work of the ministry that I've been doing. You're sharing with me in this, both in my imprisonment as they gave to help Paul in those 
hours of need. 2 Corinthians 8 talks about their gifts there and commends the Philippians for their generosity. They were supporting him in his imprisonment, but they were also participating because they were on the front lines doing the work of the ministry in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. And so it's not like if, if a preacher preached to you that, that this verse means that you're always going to be saved, that you need to go back and be like, hey, man, why didn't you read your Bible? No, don't do that. Because I've probably preached this text that way too. We can get to that truth. We just need to understand that truth from the right passages. And I just don't think this is the right passage for that. Because again, what is Paul talking about here? He's talking about their partnership. He's talking about their, their co-laboring with him. He's talking about their mission that they've received alongside of him. So Paul, as he begins this letter, is writing to this group that had partnered with him. This group that had supported him financially. Again, 2 Corinthians 8 talks about that. This group that was caring for him. This group that was, that was working alongside him. And he's writing and he's acknowledging their partnership. He's acknowledging their participation. He's saying, I'm grateful for that. It brings me joy. Not just because it benefited him, because he knew in the long run it would benefit also them, right? See, here's the thing. Our joy begins with Jesus. And then here's the, the important part. It's sustained also by Jesus. And the way it's sustained by Jesus is through you and I fulfilling, partnering, just like this church did, partnering in the work of the gospel doing the work that he's called us to do, living out the mission that he's entrusted us to live out. That's where sustaining joy is found. Point number two tonight is this. Sustain your joy in lifelong service. Sustain your joy in lifelong service. Y'all, we, we know that the, the newly saved Christian, right? The, the, the freshly saved, freshly minted believer and their joyfulness and their excitement and they're like, this is the greatest thing in the world. I want to evangelize everybody. Who can I talk to? Do you know Jesus? And it's like, yeah, I'm a pastor at the church here. I know Jesus. Thanks for asking, though. I really, seriously, thank you. And, and they're just on fire for Jesus, right? They're, they're in that Great Dane stage where they're just huge, enormous, and they're licking everybody in the face with the gospel that they can find. They're just stoked about Jesus. And then we, we have seen it, and we've, unfortunately, a lot of us experienced it where that joy begins to wane. And that, that relationship with Jesus becomes commonplace. And, and then it's like, well, yeah, I'm a, I'm a Christian. Yeah, I know I'm supposed to be evangelized, but I just don't know if it's my spiritual giftedness. Well, what happens there is we, we fail to sustain our joy the way that we should sustain our joy. We fail to sustain our joy through that ongoing relationship with Jesus of serving Jesus day in and day out for the rest of our lives. Doing things that matter for the rest of our lives. Y'all, I'm a, a tech geek, and I've talked about that before, and I get these new gadgets, and I'm like, this is the coolest thing in the world until what? Until the next one comes out, and then I'm looking at mine going, you're not the same. That joy doesn't last. Or you get a new car, and you're like, oh, man, new car smell. This is amazing. It's, kind of, it's the greatest thing in the world. Until like a week later, when your kid has McDonald's in the back and spills a French fry bag, and, and then you just smell French fries for the rest of your car ownership. You're like, this is not the same. It doesn't bring me the same joy. Even relationships, right? If I can step on some toes here. You start dating someone, you're like, she's the greatest person ever on the face of the planet. If I believed in reincarnation, like this is Mother Teresa part two. Like for real, y'all. I got her. Just give up. I found her, right? And girls, you're like, he is so romantic. He is so sweet. He's the greatest thing since sliced bread. And I just, I can't, I just think about him all the time. And I can't wait until we go out again. And then you, you date that person for a while and then you see like their fingernail clippings in their cup holder in their car and you're like, whoa, whoa, what just happened? We crossed a line that I was not there for and in, in, in about. And that joy, y'all know what I'm talking about. That joy of that new relationship begins to wane, doesn't it? See, we need something that's going to sustain it, guys. And what sustains that joy that begins with relationship with Jesus is ongoing faithfulness to that relationship with Jesus. And that's what Paul is commending with this church. He said, man, I, I rejoice over your partnership in the gospel with me. Yeah, your support is good, but the, your defense and confirmation of the gospel, when I see you standing up and holding the line, towing the line and preaching the word and standing fast and holding fast to that, Paul's like, man, that fires me up and that makes me re- happy. That brings me joy that you're doing that. C.T. Studd had one of the coolest names ever, but he also said this. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. 
Y'all, that's what we're talking about here. Some of y'all need to take an inventory of your life and go, man, if I'm pursuing these things and it's not for Jesus, I need to get rid of it because it's not going to last. This is our metric. 1 Corinthians 10.31 comes to mind. Yes, whether you eat or drink, do what? Do everything to the glory of God. I mean, that's our metric. If you want to live this life that's, that's lifelong service to the Lord, that's going to bring you joy, what's going to bring you joy is serving him. And, and no matter what your circumstances, as Paul is going to say, as, in, as we'll get there in the text, man, for me to live as Christ, to die is gain. I can't wait to die. And maybe it's tomorrow. And if it's tomorrow, great. Here's my head. I'll lay it on the chopping block. What, what makes somebody get there? It's, it's a commitment to serving Jesus no matter what, going, I've got joy knowing that he wins and I'm going to be with him. And that's where my joy is. And so let me, just, let me just love and serve him for the rest of my life. Why am I going to serve him for the rest of my life? Because of my identity. My identity is that I am his slave. So I want to know what he wants me to do. And he wants me to be like this church, to be a partaker of grace and to defend and confirm the gospel. Man, this is what's so great about Christianity. Y'all, we get to do things that last, right? We get to do things that matter. You get to share the gospel with somebody and to watch them come to faith in Jesus right there and to realize, dude, your eternity was just impacted. Not because of me, but because God just opened your eyes to the greatest news ever. Like, how cool is that? And sometimes I get more geeked out about talking to Danny about the latest iPhone update, right? It's like, what? You, you get to disciple someone. You get to take them through partners and watch their faith mature. Like this is stuff that lasts. This is stuff that matters. This brings joy that sustains, right? You get to, Lord willing, marry someone someday that loves Jesus too. And the two of you get to love Jesus together and hopefully have Jesus loving kids, right? Like that's cool. That's, that gives purpose. It gives a reason for you to wake up in the morning. It gives sustaining joy. Even if everything else goes sideways, you know there's eternal significance to what you do when you are obeying the Lord, when you are in service to Jesus. The flip side is what Solomon realized in Ecclesiastes when he said, vanity of vanities, everything is vanity. What does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Vanity, it's, it's the steam from the cup of coffee. It's there and then it's gone and you can't hold on to it. And then in Ecclesiastes chapter two, he unpacks all of his own pursuit of joy and pleasure. In fact, that's what he says. I gave my heart over to seek every kind of pleasure under the sun. He was doing it all. He was looking for joy from this world. He did significant stuff too. He built massive gardens and he built a palace. He built a temple, right? It's not like he's, just hanging out at the, the, the corner grocery store trying to, to bum cigarettes off people. No, he's like, these are significant things that he's doing. He says at the end, man, it's, it's, if that's where meaning is found, then it's meaningless. It's vanity. Only what's done for Christ will last. That lifelong service, bearing witness, believing, right? Even that is the service that we have that we render to the Lord just exercising our faith every single day in the promises of God. Believing that he's good. Believing that he's gracious. Believing that he's merciful. Believing that you will be with him, that he's going to wipe away tears from your eyes someday. It's battling, right? Battling sin, battling temptation. It's engaging in the fight. It's bearing fruit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Sustaining joy comes from cultivating more of that in your life. But where does the source of that come from? Because you might be thinking, man, so I just need to work harder for my joy. Yes and no. Philippians 2, 12 and 13 says that we're supposed to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. But then he says this, knowing that it is God who works in you, both to willing to work for his good pleasure. So there's this symbiotic relationship, but God is the one leading. God is the one doing the heavy lifting in this. And I think we find Jesus talk about this in John 15. In John 15, he says this, by this, my father is glorified. John 15, eight. My father is glorified this way, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. 
If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that, notice what Jesus says here, my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So there's Jesus, there's our Lord and Savior saying, you want joy? Joy is found in what we're talking about here in Philippians, this lifelong service of pursuing obedience to to God, right? But notice the source of that obedience is the life. The branch has no life apart from the vine. What did Jesus say? You are the branches, I am the vine. And so your source of this lifelong sustaining joy, y'all, is not your bootstraps. It's not your grit. It's not just uh, just, uh, more work and more effort on your part. Your source of this lifelong sustaining joy is Jesus. It's your relationship with him. It's doing things like Mission 66, not just to check a box, but to say, because I want to love Jesus more. Because the more you love Jesus, the easier it will be for you to have sustaining joy. The easier it will be for you to serve him. The easier it will be for you to say, yes, I am his slave and he is my master because he is so good. So if you guys want joy, it starts with Jesus. It's sustained by and in Jesus. But there's a day coming when it will be fully realized. Look at verse 8. For God is my witness, says Paul, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. I love that statement. I love that statement, y'all, because sometimes in our tribe, our theological camp, we can get a little uneasy when we get all squishy with feelings and emotions and love. Man, Paul's saying, I yearn for you. I love you with the affection of Christ Jesus. What Christ has done in my life and what he's done in your life has caused me to love you in a way that I never thought possible. That's what Paul's saying here. Lydia, Philippian jailer, wish we knew that guy's name. Your families. I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Paul loved these people. Not only I yearn for you, but earlier in the the section in verse 7, he said, I hold you in my heart. Paul cares deeply for them, and so he prays for them. And caring deeply for them, he prayed good things for them. He prays first that their love may abound more and more. He says something similar in 1 Thessalonians 3.12 as well. Uh, But what kind of love is this? Well, this is a horizontal love. This is a love for one another. But where does that love for one another come from? Well, that love for one another comes from a love for God, right? 1 John 4.10, and this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Well, John, that's pretty profound. John would say, it's not me, it's Jesus. Because Jesus says this back in Matthew chapter 22 when he's asked, hey, teacher, what's the greatest commandment? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And then Jesus says, oh, and there's a second one. You want to know what it is? Love your neighbor as yourself. Love God, love others. So Paul's saying, I'm praying that your love may abound more and more. Love for who? Love for one another. How's it going to abound more and more? The more they lean into their relationship with Jesus. The more they are loving Jesus, the more they will love one another. And then he says in verse 9, he wants that love to abound with knowledge and discernment. With knowledge, this word for knowledge here is, is not the informational word for knowledge, but the relational word for knowledge. He wants them to know God more intimately, have a, a deeper relationship with Jesus that then is going to produce this discernment, this skillful living. We studied Proverbs this summer. It's going to produce wisdom in the way that they live their lives so that, verse 10, you will know what is excellent. In other words, what's essential in your life. He's going to talk about in in a few verses in in chapter 1, verse 27, living your life in a manner worthy of the gospel. He wants them to know how to do that. And to know how to do that is going to flow from a love for the Lord that causes them to know him more that then causes them to be able to understand how to live their life in a manner worthy of the gospel. And then verse 10, he continues, and so be pure and blameless for, here it is, the day of Christ. 
And this is where Paul introduces this eschatological hope, this hope in the end times, this hope in the culmination of all things, when our joy will be fully realized, when we will be, in verse 11, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And so Paul's praying for them, much of what we just talked about in point number two, that their joy will be sustained through lifelong service as they love God more, as they love others more, as their knowledge increases, as their discernment increases so that they can prove what is excellent, all in anticipation of the day of Christ, all in anticipation of getting to the place where they are filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Joy begins with Jesus, it's sustained by Jesus, and it has its end with Jesus. Final point tonight is this, get ready for full joy with Jesus. Get ready for full joy with Jesus. Psalm 1611, if you don't know, it's a good one to to commit to memory. Psalm 1611 says this, you, God, make known to me the path of life. Okay, well, I, I, want, I want that. That's good. In your presence, God, there is fullness of joy. In the presence of God, there's fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That means where God is not, there is no fullness of joy. Okay? And at the right hand of God are pleasures forevermore. Y'all, that is a future that awaits us. This is a verse that we often go to when we preach funerals for a believer because we're saying, you know where they are? They're in the presence of God. And Psalm 1611 says they're in the presence of the fullness of joy and there's nowhere else on this earth that can offer that to you. Nowhere. Whatever your greatest dreams and ambitions and hopes and desires are, they will not give you the, the fullness of joy. The fullness of joy is only found in the presence of the Father in the presence of God. And guess what? Jesus has opened that way for us so that we can be with him, so that he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Do you want that? Got joy, right? Do you want that joy? It's found with Jesus. With Jesus. And we need to be getting ready for that, right? Y'all know, because it's, it's now very public knowledge, that, that Pastor Rod and I are getting ready to, to plant this church in North Texas, and Lord willing, we'll be out there in about a year, and we're getting ready for that. In that day, September 10th, 2023, which is the tentative date that we've got on our, our calendar, that day's there, and it's like, okay, Lord willing, if, if he sees fit, it's going to get here. But there's things that he and I need to be doing right now to get ready for that day. Not that we are going to make ourselves more qualified for that day, not that we are going to make ourselves more fit for that day, but, but we're going to be ready for it so that we can hit the ground running so that we can experience it to the, to the fullness that it will be. And, you know, we're, we're eager for that day. We had a prayer night in here on Friday night, and it was like, it was all I could do to not just pack up the car right now and leave, right? Which would be really confusing for Pastor Mike when he got back from vacation. Where, where did Pastor PJ go? But I want to be there, but I have to do what, what I need to be doing now so that when we get there, it, it, it is what it, it, it's supposed to be. Y'all, that's kind of what we're talking about here with this sustaining joy, this service to the Lord. It's getting ready through our love, through our knowledge, through our discernment, so that that day we will be with Jesus in the fullness of his joy. Again, love, knowledge, discernment, ability to approve what's best, purity, and holiness. Just some questions for you to consider. Are are you closer to Jesus this year than you were last year? I hope so. Do you love him more this year than maybe you did last year? Are, Are you filling your life with things that cause you to love Jesus more, to desire to be with Jesus? Have your affections for him increased do you want to know him more? I was so encouraged tonight. I was talking to somebody before the bridge and they just said, man, I'm, I'm loving my time in the word right now. It's been so good to have that. That is, that, that's it. That's what we're after. John 16, 22. Jesus is talking to his disciples. He's getting ready to go to the cross. And he tells them, so also you have sorrow now, John 16, 22, so also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. 
Was he talking about the resurrection and, and when he's walking around with them for those 40 days before ascending? Maybe in part, but I think more he's talking about the fact that he's going to see them in eternity. And that's when they're going to have a joy that nobody else is going to be able to take from them. And that's written not just to the, the, the disciples that he was with, but it's written to you and me too. You may have sorrow in this world right now, but there's a joy coming when you are with Jesus that this world will never be able to t- touch. 1 Peter 1, 8 and 9. 1 Peter 1, 8 and 9. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And here it is. You rejoice with joy that is inexpressible. Do you guys rejoice with joy that is inexpressible? At the thought of being with Jesus, who we can't see right now, but we love him right now, you rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and it's filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. That's where the joy, I don't know if it'll be expressible at that point, but we'll have all of eternity to try to express it, right? Like, have you ever been around a person that's just like giddy to a level 100 about whatever happened in their life and they just can't even get the words out to tell you how great it was? It just, like, that's going to be eternity, We're going to be with Jesus going, can you believe this? Like, we made it. Can you, how good is God that we're here? And there's Jesus. Like, it's it's going to be that much joy and so much more. And it's joy that's found with Jesus. So if you guys want joy, right, which is the question of this series, do you have it? Do you want it? If you have it and you have this kind of joy, then chances are you want more of it. If you don't have it, I hope tonight your interest was piqued and and maybe you do want it. And if that's you, you can have it tonight by repenting from your sins and putting your trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You can talk to me, you can talk to Pastor Rod, you can talk to one of our leaders about that. We love love to have that conversation with you tonight. But here's the deal, y'all. Joy begins with Jesus, sustained by Jesus, and it culminates with Jesus. The rest of the book of Philippians is going to unpack what that looks like in action. And I'm super stoked to borrow a Greek word for the rest of this study. Let's pray. God, you are good And so we can submit ourselves to you as our master, as our Lord, and do so with great joy, as we've been talking about tonight. When the world looks at us and says, what's wrong with you? We can say, there's nothing wrong with us. We know a good God. We serve a good God. We love a good God. And we've got a good and forgiving Savior in Jesus. God, we thank you so much for Jesus, for the forgiveness that we have in him for the love that you poured out for us by pouring out your wrath upon him as he hung on the cross so that we can be forgiven. Lord, we thank you that there is a joy that transcends our circumstances here, a joy that can be ours as it was for Paul as he was writing from a prison cell, not knowing if he was going to die later on that day or that afternoon or tomorrow or when it would be. God, there's a joy that we can have that says there's so much more to this world than what this world offers us. So God, I pray that you would increase our desires for that such that we would lose a taste for the trinkets and the treasures of this world that they try to get us to buy into. God, cause us to be insatiable for Jesus and for the joy that is only found in him, we pray in his name. Amen.